0: Well, we're gonna we're gonna jump right into our study today. Um, I've recognized that we've we've gone quite a bit long the last couple of weeks, so I'm gonna give you a bit of a break there. Um, it doesn't come by often, so take it. Um, but we're gonna jump into our study of First Corinthians um, chapter three, and really, Paul is going to um, sort of uh, come to a concluding point of his argument here. And and really, uh, as we look at this, it's really a great uh, summary of all that he has taught so far um, that he also includes some conclusions with. And, you know, Paul's a good teacher. If you're a teacher today, uh, you know the importance of summaries. You know, you you come to the end of a semester, perhaps it's good to sort of summarize all that you've been teaching your students up to that point. And, and that's certainly kind of the idea Paul has here. So on the surface level, as we read these verses, it might seem like Paul is just simply regurgitating uh, some of the thoughts that he uh, earlier uh, earlier said. But as we dig down deep, and I, see, I think you'll see this today, we see it's actually much more than that. It is a summary, but this time it's accompanied with conclusions um, about this. If you remember, Paul has exposed the root cause of the divisions in the church. The root cause is being carnality and worldliness, right? That's the idea of carnal Christians. They were they were fleshly, worldly. They were indeed Christians, born-again believers, but they were still being governed by the flesh, human wisdom, human thought. That's what governed them, and so they just did things. They just continue to do things in, in the world, and the believer is supposed to be governed differently, governed by the Spirit, governed with a spiritual mind, but that was the underlying spiritual uh, root of the problem. The, um, sort of secondary cause of their problems then was, was a result is that they were exalting human wisdom and exalting human leaders. And Paul has been attacking those those problems really since the beginning. And if, if we could summarize those arguments that Paul has been highlighting up to this point, but maybe with a different little bit different perspective, Paul has highlighted the deficiencies That are inherent in exalting human wisdom and human leaders. If you think about back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, in fact, turn to chapter 1, the deficiency created with exalting human wisdom was an improper view of ourselves, right? An improper view of ourselves, because that's what Paul addressed in verse 20 of chapter 1. Where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world, right? That that we think we're wise. We think we have it all down. Where are the debaters? Where are those ones who know it all, he's saying, because you don't really know it all. Um, that kind of exalting human wisdom has no place in the church. That's what he addresses in verses 26 to 28. You're the church, he says. Corinthians, uh, that's how you are called, Look, he says, you see your calling, brethren, not many wise, according to the flesh, meaning not many, you know, humanly wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised. God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring the nothing, the things that are so exalting human wisdom. What that does? It elevates us, right? It elevates humans to a point uh, where we're the all-knowing ones, and it makes us to be wise. When in fact, Paul concluded that we're carnal, and that's what was happening in Corinth. So, if you could sort of look at that deficiency, it manifests an improper view of of ourselves as human beings. It also manifests an improper view of Others, because what, what what were they doing? Paul introduced the idea in chapter one. They were exalting others, right? They were taking human leaders and exalting them to this place that they didn't belong. Remember in chapter one he says, you know, some say I'm of a Paul, I'm a Paul, I'm I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. But here in chapter uh, chapters three and even into chapter four is where he deals more specifically with the issue of exalting human leaders. And in chapter three, verse four. This is what he said. When one says I am of Paul and another I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? You are exalting people like me, Paul, he says, and like Apollos. But then Paul went on to say, But neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, right? Paul was the one who planted. Apollos came along and watered, but but we're really nothing. We are just ministers, he says. We're we're busboys. We are we are servants. You're exalting the wrong people, and they were exalting human leaders. And that's an improper view of, of others um, because they're just God's fellow workers. Remember, he says that we're fellow workers. And in ma- and manifesting an improper view of others, elevating them, then you inherently are going to manifest an improper view of, of, of God because you're going to demote him in a way. Remember, he ver- says in verse 7 in chapter 3, it's God who gives the increase. It's God who gives the increase in verse 6. We are God's field. He says, you are God's building. You are God's temple. All those things belong to who? God. So we elevate human leaders, which is an improper view of others, and then we sort of de- devalue God. No, God possesses all of that. He possesses you. It's all for, it's all for him, and it has nothing to do with your uh, wisdom. And then it manifests an improper view of our rewards, and we looked at that last week, which is really, you know, what we're going to ultimately possess and and Paul focused on that judgment of the believers' works last week. We, look, we looked at uh that. So if you kind of look at all that we studied so far, Paul has touched on all those sort of deficiencies and improper views of all these uh these areas. And now as he comes to this summary and he gives us the conclusion, he's going to tell us, well, how do we eliminate division in the church then? Well. If division manifests sort of all of these uh, misunderstandings, then we need to have the proper understandings of these things, right? If we have an improper view of ourselves, then then what's the proper view of ourselves? If we have an improper view of others, what's the proper view of others and of God and our possessions? And that's what he's going to look at today. What's the biblical understanding of those things? And that's what we'll pull out of the passage today. We're going to look at verses 18 to 23 to finish chapter three. So let's read together. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let what no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. God, we come into your presence today, just desiring to hear from you, to hear the words of the divine, and Lord, we do recognize our utter dependence upon you for truth and your Spirit, to illuminate that truth to us. And Lord, I pray your Spirit would be present in each of us. Lord, that you would help us to see uh, the truth of of Paul's words here, which are your words, and Lord, that we would take them to to heart and that we would, Lord, really look at our lives and how, how are we, Lord, apt to use human wisdom or have the wrong view of others and the wrong view of ourselves or our possessions or even of you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, just mold us, shape us. Lord, help us to be uh, ready um, to, to hear truth from you, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, those are the four sort of things we're just going to look at today. Uh, number one is, to, is is the proper understanding of ourselves. If we have a, an improper understanding or a misunderstanding of ourselves that he's covered up to this point. What is the proper understanding of ourselves? And we'll see this here, in verses 18 to 20, but let's just begin in verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, what's really interesting is that, uh, again, this sounds very similar to what we've already studied back in chapter one. And, And back in chapter one, there's already a great difference even in our world from what's happening in the world from when we were studying chapter one to us coming to chapter three here. And what's amazing is this, is that I did not orchestrate this, right? Uh, I did not arrive at this section of scripture in some giant scheme, right? None of us knew that after a worldwide pandemic and lockdown, that we would have worldwide rioting and lawlessness. I mean, who, you know, I I had down uh, locusts and shark tornadoes for June. I mean, I don't know what you had down, but uh, this is where we are, right? This is our, 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 world. And we have a world in absolute chaos, trying to use the wisdom of the world to address a terrible situation. And there are those think that the best course of action for some things would be to say, defund the police. And what's interesting about maybe something like that, I just think about the mercy and grace of God. You know, this world is full of evil. It's full of wickedness And God could have just planted us here and just left us to, you know, to just fend for ourselves like, well, good luck, right? But he didn't do that. In fact, he gave us four great restraints against evil. The first being your conscience. We all have a conscience. You know, it's this little mechanism inside of us that uh, tells us when we're doing wrong and when we're doing right. And that conscience is meant to be biblically informed. We inform it with biblical wisdom, not unhuman wisdom, biblical wisdom, biblical thinking. We give a, a biblical worldview to things. We inform that conscience, and then we know when we're doing right or wrong. But what has been the great target against man since the beginning is, this, is to attack that conscience. You have to inform it with the right things, but the world has been informing it with false things, right? Falsehood, lies, untruths, a world, a secular worldview, And so, so many, uh, their conscience is seared and the Bible talks about that, right? It's, it's seared. It, It no longer informs them truly about what is right and wrong. So the conscience has been taken away from, from many. That's why we see the kinds of horrid things happening. You're just like, gosh, doesn't this guy have a conscience? And the biblical answer would be probably not anymore because it's not biblically informed. The second great restraint God has given us out of his mercy was the family, because you think back to Deuteronomy chapter six, right? The father, the mother, they were meant to teach these biblical truths to their children and pass it on that they know, they might know what is right and what is wrong. What has been the great attack against the family, right? Remove it. We don't need it. We don't want the nuclear family. Get rid of the father as the head, right? And And just destruction of the family. That's gone away. And now we have people using human wisdom saying, and let's also get rid of the police, right? Because that's a third restraint God has given us governing authorities. You read Romans 13, governing authorities to help restrain evil, right? Fear him who has the sword, he says, because he he uses it to restrain evil. There's people thinking, hey, let's take that away. Guess what we're going to be left with? The last restraint, which is the church. The last bastion against the evil of this world running absolutely amok is the church, and guess what? That, that will be taken away. That restraint will be pulled away, according to 2 Thessalonians. That's the church. The church will be removed, and that catapults the world into Revelation chapter 6 to the end. It will literally be hell on earth. It's an example of Romans chapter one, when the the world demands uh, to to live its way and to worship itself, God gives them over to those things. You want me to remove those restraints? Fine, they're removed. And ultimately, he'll remove uh, the church as well. And then it says the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be Revealed, and the coming of that lawless one, according to 2 Thessalonians, says, is according to the working of Satan. What we have to recognize is that ultimately behind all of this is, is Satan. The kind of thinking is walking, quote, according to the course of this world. I say quote because it's from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. It says that you, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit uh, who now works in the sons of disobedience. Who is that prince of the power of the air? That is Satan. So this is, this is, this is our world. Uh, this is what Satan wants to see happening. Now, when I'm talking about the wisdom of the world, again, just to clarify, I've mentioned this several times, I'm not talking about the kind of human wisdom it takes to paint a house or fix a car. I'm not talking about the kind of advances in science and technology. I'm talking about trying to solve problems of ethics, behavior, morality, using wisdom of the world instead of God's word, Christian principles. And when we do that, we create spiritual disaster. That's that results. So Paul says that when we do those things, look what he says, verse 18, we deceive ourselves. Let no one deceive himself. Let No one deceive himself. How do people deceive themselves? They think they're wise, but they're not. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone uh, among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. They think they're wise in this age. Now, this is the fifth time Paul has used that word uh, age. heon. it's a period of time, a historic uh, period. That's what that means. So they think they're wise in this time or this age or this this era. But but they aren't. Why? They have an improper view of themselves, right? An improper view of themselves. The proper understanding is that they must divest themselves of pride and become fools, right? If you seem to be wise in this age, he says, let him become a fool. Let him become a fool. Now, we've seen this word fools before. It's moros. It's foolish, dull, stupid. That's the thats the word. I know I just said the S word there. We, we we looked at that word in chapter one because Paul used it twice in verses 25 to 27. I just want to take you there real quick again. Look at verse 25 of chapter one. Because the foolishness of God, the moros of God is wiser than men. That He's saying the stupidity of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Look at verse 27. God has chosen the Foolish things of the world to put the shame the wise, right? So he's saying that the, 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 the stupidity of God, if he could be stupid, but you can't, is actually wiser than men. God has chosen those things, those moros things. If you are deceived into thinking yourself wise, you must choose to become moros. Foolish, he says. You must identify with those that, that recognize that human wisdom is what God declares it to be. Foolish and instead conform to God's wisdom. Why? Why do that? Look at verse 19. For, because, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. This is a little bit variation of that word. It's moria. Foolishness is moria, silliness, absurdity. In fact, you take these two words together, it's where we get that word moron from. It's not a nice word, but it's it's the biblical word here, moros, moria, and Paul used this word four times so far as well, foolishness. He used it in chapter 1, verses 18, 21, 23, and then chapter 2, verse 14. What is he saying here? He's saying this, that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. It's, it's absurdity. It's absolute absurdity. Believers should be looking at the world and saying, yeah, this is absolute absurdity. The world may regard believers as fools, right? That's how the world looks at as believers, as, as Christians, as fools, because we begin to think along spiritual lines. We begin to think and, and apply biblical wisdom and biblical principles. But God regards men as, as foolish when they take up the wisdom of this world. Now, you might've got this far and say, well, how, how do we really know that's what really Paul's getting to? Because he's, he's talked about it in chapter one twice. He's talking about it here well, in chapter one, he just referred to it and said, yeah, that's just the way it is. And if you believe in scripture, you say, well, Paul just said, that's that's the way it is. But here, because he's trying to wrap things up and make a point, Paul gives us evidence. He gives us two Old Testament passages from scripture as evidence. Look at what we have here in verse 19. He says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, and here is the quote, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Now, Paul quoting here is quoting from Job chapter five, verse 13. And this is very important. It's a very important quote. And I think it's one we have to investigate. And the reason is this, there's many, many voices in the book of Job. You have to go, well, well who is saying that phrase in Job? Is it God? Because God speaks in Job. Is it Satan? Because Satan speaks in the book of Job. Is it, is it uh, Eliphaz or Bildad? Or so far, or Elihu. You see, there's all these characters in Job. So who is saying that? We've got to see what Paul is trying to communicate to us. So we've got to go to Job. So let's go turn to Job. You've got to go way back into the Old Testament. If you go to the middle and you find Psalms, you're pretty close because it's the book that precedes that. Job chapter five. Job chapter five. We've got to do a little investigating here to find out why Paul is putting this verse in here to support what he's been saying. Now, if you turn to Job chapter five, unless you have one of those headings, which mine does over over each chapter that tells you what it's about, you may not know who is speaking. So you have to go to the beginning of chapter four. You go to the beginning of chapter four, verse one tells us, it says, then Eliphaz, the Temanite answered. So we know that Eliphaz is speaking in chapter four. And if you kind of go through it, he's still speaking through chapter five. And it's not until chapter six that we see, then Job answered. So chapters four and five are coming from Eliphaz. Now, what is Eliphaz talking about? What he's doing? Well, to know what he's talking about, we kind of have to go before Eliphaz. He's responding to something. He's responding to someone. What is he responding to? Go back to chapter three. Ah, chapter three is Job. And it's that wonderful, wonderful, encouraging passage where Job deplores his birth. (laughs) You remember that? He just wishes he were never born. Now, why do we meet a guy who wishes he were never born? Maybe you're new to the book of Job. You don't don't know this, but we learned at the beginning of Job that he was an upright man, that he was a blameless man. But then he lost everything. Uh, Everything disappeared, okay? He lost his family. He lost his property. um, He lost his health. He managed to hang on to his cantankerous wife, but he lost all those other things. And so he he gets to the point where he says, I just wish I were never born. I mean, look at chapter uh, three, verse three, may the day perish on which I was born. That's a pretty low attitude, isn't it? Right? I mean, he's wishing he were never born. Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? I mean, Paul, I mean, Job is one depressed individual. And so he has lost all these things and seemingly through seemingly... Uh, random events, a a great wind, and sort of these raiders came in and took things and And so you have these seemingly maybe acts of God that have taken everything, and now he's broken out in boils and sores all over his body. And so all these terrible things are happening to him. Enter Eliphaz. Eliphaz is one of, uh, well, we call him Job's three friends. I don't know how much of a friend they really were to him, but Eliphaz comes in and starts speaking to him in chapter four. And what Eliphaz is trying to prove to Job here, and I'll show you in a second here, is that what Job is merely reaping is the rewards of his unrighteousness. Clearly, Job, you've done something wrong, and uh, you you, you deserve to be punished for your wrongness. And so that is what you are experiencing. Let me show you. Look at verse 8 of chapter 4. Here's Eliphaz. Even as I have seen, he says, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, reap the same. Right? So he says, if you plow iniquity, you're going to, you're going to, and and sow trouble, you're going to reap iniquity and you're going to reap trouble. He said, that's what I've seen in life. That's just how life works. So he's just looking at the world and saying, that's what I've seen. And so he goes on and in chapter five, this is where we get to the verse that Paul is quoting, but we'll look at verse 12 first. He says, um, well, he's talking about about God. Let's look at verse 8. But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I, I would commit my, my cause. So he's saying, You you need to go to God and say you, you need to humble yourself. Why? Why does he need to go to God? Well, he talks about God in verse 12. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. Verse 13, and here's the verse that Paul quotes He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning. And then you go down to verse 17 Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. So, here is what we find. We find in Eliphaz's experience, people only reap what they sow. You've obviously done something wrong, and now you're getting punished for it. And if I were you, as if it were for me, I'd go to God. I'd commit myself to him. Why? Because he catches the wise in their craftiness. The counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon him. Now, here's what's interesting about this. And this is what will help you understand why Paul quotes it. Eliphaz is wrong. And you, as a reader of Job, already know that. Because wonderful thing about Job is that we are, as a reader, as an audience, we're taken behind the scenes. You're, you're taken behind the curtain at the very beginning. It's as if this drama is going to be played out, but you, you get to see a glimpse of what's happening, and the players in the story don't even know. Because at the very beginning of Job chapter one, we're told that Job was blameless, that he was upright. And that Satan goes into the presence of God and God asks him, oh, what you been doing, Satan? He says, I'm going to and fro around the world. And and in verse eight, this is what God says to Satan. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Eliphaz is wrong. We hear from the very beginning that he's actually an upright man. He is a blameless man. What's happening is not a result of his unrighteousness, of his sin and his iniquity that he, he, he reaped and now he's sowing. Eliphaz is completely wrong. This is just how he saw things. In his human wisdom, this is how it looked to him. Why? Why? He had no connection to the spiritual realm at all. He had no idea what was happening behind the scenes. But we as the audience know that Joe, uh, Satan says to God, well, well, yeah, uh, of, cor- of course he's blameless. Of course he's upright because you've blessed him. He's got all this property. He's got all these possessions. He's got a wonderful family. But if you took all that away, he'd curse you. And God says, okay, try it. You can take everything away. You just can't hurt him. So all these random things happen. He loses his family. He loses his property. And what happens? He still praises the Lord. So Satan's wrong. And Satan says, well, yeah, I mean, he did that, but that's because you didn't let me touch him physically. But if you let me touch him, oh, then, then, then he's going to curse you. And God says, okay, well, now you can touch him. You just can't kill him. So all these painful sores break out and all these things. And, and who, does, who does Job curse? He curses himself. He doesn't curse God. He doesn't go, oh, God, why? he goes, ah, oh, I wish I were never born, right? Who curses God? It's his wife. His wife says, you just need to curse God and die. Job remains faithful. Eliphaz is completely wrong. His advice is incorrect. His summation of what is taking place is wrong. Now, how else do we know that Eliphaz is wrong? Well, you go to the end of Job, Job chapter 42. We actually don't hear from God for quite a while in this book, not until the end. But in Job chapter 42, verse 7, this is what God says. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, here it is, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. He says, I'm angry at you. and Why? You got it wrong. You got it wrong. You didn't speak about me of what is right. That's not how I operate. It's not just, you better do good, you better do good, because if you don't, I'm going to hammer you. That's not how the God of this this wonderful world and our lives, that's not how he operates these things. It's a human view of how he operates things, because we've incorporated those kind of things, right? Zeus and those ideas of God, so he's just going to, you know, throw lightning bolts at people if they do wrong. That is not our God. Eliphaz is wrong. He's completely Wrong. Now, get this. Go back to 1 Corinthians and let's see why Paul is using it. This is why this is so amazing and why it took so much time. I just need you to see that this is Paul putting in this. Now, think about this. Eliphaz wrongly used the word wise in the sense of human wisdom in a reference to Job. Look Look at what he says. He says it's written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. He says that of Job you're just kind of using human wisdom here, but he catches you. He catches you in that, Job. He catches you, but he's wrongly used that. So, here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to to use the same phrase Eliphaz used and apply it in exactly the opposite case. He uses it to refer to the wisdom of the the natural man or this, this carnal believer wasn't a carnal believer. He was a righteous man. Do you see what I'm saying? So now it's used in this sense. He catches the wise in their, um, in their crafty craftiness. He's talking to those carnal believers that he introduced in, in chapter 3. He's talking to those uh, natural men that maybe, you know, uh, pretend to be Christians or who have nothing to deal with, uh, to do with God. He, he catches them in their uh, craftiness. So he's using it to refer to the wisdom of that kind of man who are foolish in the eye of God because why? They, they see themselves as wise. Do you see that? Eliphaz saw himself as wise. He accused Job of that though. No, Job, you just wise in your own eyes. No, it was Eliphaz who was wise in his own eyes. Job was right. Job didn't understand what was going on. Job was depressed. Job despised the day he was born, but Job was, Job was upright. Eliphaz was wrong. He was wise in his own Eyes. And Eliphaz's words are turned and used against these carnal believers. You're wise in your own eyes. You're caught in your own craftiness. Why? They have an improper view of themselves. They're not wise, just like Eliphaz. Let me tell you what's going on because I have all the wisdom. Eliphaz didn't know what was going on. But we have another example in verse 20. Look at verse 20. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Now, listen, this is such an important thing that Paul uses not one Old Testament reference, but two. What does he refer to here? He refers to Psalm 94, 11. You're going to want to turn there. Psalm 94, 11. I know we've gone back and forth a bit, but Psalm 94, 11. All right. Psalm 94 is a very interesting, uh, Psalm. It's an, uh, it's urgent concern is, is really with three things that the righteous are being oppressed, that the, the wicked are prospering and that God just doesn't seem to notice or he doesn't care. Th- those are the three things that are happening in Psalm 94. righteous people, good people are being oppressed. The wicked seem to prosper and God doesn't seem to care. All right. That's, That's the verse that he quotes, Psalm 94. Now, look at this. I'll just show it to you. Look at the first three verses. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? So here you have the psalmist pleading with God at the very beginning, right? To punish the wicked, right? Punish the proud. So that's the address to God. Then in verses four to seven, he, he's sort of sharing with God what those wicked people are doing. Look at the verse four. They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. This is all about pride. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Ah, So here he's showing the, uh, sort of the, the arrogance of the wicked. They do all these terrible things, but their pride is shining forth because they do it saying, Oh, the Lord doesn't see this thing. Or he doesn't understand that word understand really has the idea of he doesn't really pay attention. Meaning he doesn't really care. He either doesn't see, or doesn't really care about what's going on. You know, it's just you humans. You just do what you want to do. That's the, the arrogance of the wicked. So then. You get to the part where Paul's going to quote. Look at verse 8. This is a, this is an admonition to those foolish people. Understand you senseless among the people and you fools. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge? And then here's the verse that Paul quotes the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile. You see how important it is for us to see in context? Do you see what he's saying there? He's like, this is how arrogant you are. You actually think you're pulling one over on God. The God who gave you an ear, you think that he can't hear? The God who made that amazing thing we call an eyeball, you think he can't see? He even knows your minds. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, they're futile. The Corinthians were relying upon human wisdom upon human opinion. And they were elevating leaders based upon that human wisdom and opinion. And God sees it all. Pretty arrogant. And because of that attitude, they were creating division. The church of God was being divided because of that attitude. So listen, folks, we've got to have a proper understanding of ourselves. That's Paul's whole point here to begin with. You're like You're like Eliphaz the Temanite, he's saying. You're you're like those those wicked people in in Psalm 94. And all of us would say, yeah, those people deserve to die. They slay the widow, they hurt the fatherless. Yeah, yeah." but they do it in their pride, saying, God doesn't care. He doesn't see these things going on. It's arrogance, it's pride, and they have an improper view of themselves. How about this? How about having the proper understanding of others, right? We want to eliminate division. We need to have a proper understanding of ourselves, but also the proper understanding of others. Look at verse 21. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. We'll stop right there. He begins this with the word therefore, and I know you've all heard this phrase before, but maybe you're new and you haven't. When you see a therefore, you always need to go back to see what it's there for right? Therefore, points backwards. Now, we have the luxury of having come from where it's been pointing, right? It, it it means that what he has just said has bearing on what he's about to say. That's what therefore means, right? So, therefore, since human wisdom is ultimately fruitless, let no one boast in men, okay? Let no one boast in men. Now, remember, the church was it was dividing over loyalties to particular leaders, whether it was Paul or Apollos or, or, or Cephas, Peter. Peter was mentioned in chapter one. Peter probably wasn't in Corinth, but apparently he was mentioned because apparently some had benefited from his ministry. But in either case, they were elevating these different leaders. But here's the thing what Paul does here in this session. The emphasis, the emphasis is different. The emphasis is different. Now, let me clarify by setting this up, and I'll make it clear for you. Paul, he's talking about men who are equal. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they're all equal in what they teach. Equal in doctrine and equal in the example that they live through holy living, right? That's that they're equal in that. There's not one greater than another. They weren't dividing over that. They were dividing over personalities, And I say that because I need to make sure we understand the difference here. Now, there is an overall instruction in scripture to submit to those who rule over you in a church, right? And I'll give you the examples. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Look at this. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So it says obey those, right? Because because they're watching out for your souls. I mean, they're doing an important job, so obey, obey them. Now, listen, be, th- it says that because it automatically assumes that you're going to be at a church that has godly leaders that teach um, the word of God, and so it will be easy for you to submit to them as, as, as leaders because you can follow their faith because a few verses before that verse, verse seven sets that up for us. Look what it says. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. There you have three things there, right? Remember those who rule over you, who have done what? Who've spoken the word of God to you. Okay, that means they're teaching the truth. They're teaching the full doctrine of God, whose faith you can follow. Because why? You're looking at the outcome of their conduct. Okay, this is the idea. This is why I'm saying this. The Bible directs us to follow the faith of godly leaders, but it assumes that we're we're attending churches that have godly leaders. It never assumes the opposite. It assumes, brothers and sisters, that you are you'll be at a church that has godly leaders teaching God's word, whose faith you can follow. It never assumes the opposite. So why I say this is yes, yes, we're called to respect to follow our leaders, but we should do so because they teach the word of God faithfully and they live holy lives. Consistently, okay? That's not the issue Paul is dealing with uh, here. And division would come if you have a leader who isn't teaching God's word faithfully, who isn't uh, living uh, a holy life, you don't follow that leader. I mean, if that was the case with Paul and Apollos and Cephas, then certainly there would be reason to divide, right? Yeah, I'm not gonna follow that guy. So, this is why I'm making that distinction. We, we do make a division, if you will. We do divide from those who are not faithfully teaching the word of God, and we don't follow those ones who, who live their lives inconsistently. The thrust of this passage is this. You're dividing over leaders who all do the same thing. They all teach the same truth, and they all live the same faithful life of holy living. You're dividing over them. Why do that? And notice what he says, when all are yours. Look at verse 21 again. Let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Do you see what he's saying here? (laughs) They're they're all godly teachers. Don't boast in which one you follow because you have the privilege of, of following many of them because they're all yours. Listen, when I sit down to prepare a sermon, I benefit from the teaching of many. I have books all over my desk. I have all these book props, these things that set up the books so you can see them and you don't have to be leaning over them, right? I've got them all set up because I, I want to benefit from all these ever other teachers. I have MacArthur, I have Spurgeon, I have Heating, I have Walford and Zuck, I have Alexander McLaren. I have all these guys. Guess what? I can do that because they're all mine. They're all for my benefit. They're all for your benefit. We have the benefit. Why would I just choose? Why would I just choose one, right? Listen. We have had the joy and privilege of studying and learning from Paul. Last year and the year prior, we had, we had the privilege of studying under John. How ridiculous would it be for us to go, oh, Paul, no, I follow John, right? I'll read John's stuff, but Paul, no, we have them all. Why would we divide over that? They're for all of us. In reference to Paul and Apollos and Cephas, that's mentioned here, um, Alexander McLaren says this, and I thought he says it beautifully these three teachers were all lights kindled at the central light, and therefore sharing and shining. They were fragments of his holy wisdom of him that spoke, varying but harmonious and mutually complementary aspects of the one infinite truth that had been committed to them. You get that? Yeah, there were they are varied because they have different personalities, but they all spoke the same thing. It was harmonious. It was complementary. They all kindled at the same central light. That's the idea here. So our first responsibility should be to a local uh, church. Our, our spiritual submission first would be to those leaders in that context. But to the extent that other uh, teachers and other leaders are are, are godly, they spiritually unite those to whom they minister, and they do it through all kinds of means today don't they radio, internet, television, magazines, books conferences again though i would I would heed the admonition in hebrews thirteen seven that we read that that if you don't know about their conduct right you you want to make sure you know about their conduct because you want to be able to follow that faith, so it 's not just what they teach but how they how they live. We follow those. Uh, leaders. So here's that's Paul's thrust here, right? Why limit yourself to one? I mean, you're dividing over Paul Apostles. That's ridiculous. They're all for you. They're all yours. Do you see that? They had the improper view of others. All all these godly men, all the teaching, it's for it's for all of us. So they have the uh the wrong view of our, ourselves and the wrong view of others. So we've gotten the proper views here, right? Well, here's the third one: the proper understanding of our possessions the proper understanding of our possessions. Look at verse 22, the rest of verse 22. He goes on to say, after he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, he says, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. So not only are all godly leaders ours, but everything is ours. Now, why wouldn't everything be yours? Honestly, why wouldn't it be? I mean, you are joint heirs of God joint heirs with Christ. You you remember Jesus prayed in John 17 that the glory which he had would be given to you. That's you, you have that. You're joint heirs with him, you have his glory. Why wouldn't we have everything? But Paul actually gives us a specific list here and look at what he says. He says, uh, the world, you have the world. In fact, he uses that word cosmos, which which John uses a lot, uh, which is, is not just the earth, the globe, but he uses often to refer to the entire world system, the evil world system uh, even. And we do know that it's under the grip of Satan. I mean, 1 John 5, 19 tells us that. It's under the sway of the wicked one, right? But but here's what this says. The world is yours. Some of you might be looking around and going, I don't want it, (laughs) right? But think back to that great hymn. This is my father's world. When we look at the world, we should still see it as our father's will and as we are joint heirs with him it's ours this is yours remember Jesus' wonderful sermon on the mount the beatitudes what do you, what he say there bless are the meek for they shall what inherit the earth right you're going to inherit the earth it's it's all it's all yours it's all for you brothers we the, and we can look at and we can look it and see all this beautiful i look outside and i see the rain i see the beautiful green it's just it refreshes my soul And I thank my heavenly father for, hey, you gave this to me. He gave it to you. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, Jesus says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. Don't you just love that? You'll inherit everything and he'll be your God. Why would we bother quibbling over who, who you follow or who you gather with and to these little factions and to these little cliques, when everything is yours. Do you see Paul's point? The whole world is yours. Also, what else does he list? Life. So he says, uh, the world or life. Now I think this primarily refers to eternal life, right? And we learn in First John chapter five verse 20, it says, "We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life, right? So God's own life is in us now. We have that divine nature. We have eternal life because we're in His Son. He's like, you you have that life, right? You're just focused on all these little petty things. You have the world. You have this eternal life because you're, you're one with Him. And then he says a very interesting word, death, <laughs> right? All things are yours, world, life, death. You might go, well, I don't want that, right? <laughs> you, can, you can keep that part. What's he mean by this? Listen, you guys, you, you own death. You, you've got it. Because Jesus conquered it through the resurrection. Because he did that, we did too. Because we're one in him. He, he conquered it. Death no longer has power over you. Death only has one ability, one thing that death can do. It has one function in the life of the believer. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Death can only usher you into the presence of God. That, that's all death can do. It has no fear, right? It has no judgment, has no condemnation. There's not something unknown and mysterious. Death has one function in the life of the believer, and that is to just immediately escort you into the presence of God. You see, for believers also, before your believers, death used to be bad, right? It's something we feared, something which had great power over us, but no more. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 1, 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we live, hey, it's Christ here on earth. And if we die, hey, it's Christ in heaven. I, I I actually have a win-win situation here is what he's saying. But Paul actually, he actually says there is one that's better than the other, doesn't he? Um, and he gives us that in in verses 23 and 24. For I'm hard pressed between the two. It's a hard decision, he's saying. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So he says here, that it's a hard decision, but what's far better, the best choice, the best thing is to depart and be with Christ. Nevertheless, I remain here on earth because it's needful for others, right? It's important for ministry. It's building the kingdom of of God. So it's Christ here on earth, but if I die, it's Christ in heaven. Listen to this wonderful poem by Calvin Miller. It, it, It puts it beautifully. I once scorned every fearful thought of death, when it was but the end of pulse and breath. But now my eyes have seen that past the pain, there is a world that's waiting to be claimed. Earth maker, holy, let me now depart. For living's such a temporary art. And dying is but getting dressed for God. Our graves are merely doorways cut in sod. Isn't that incredible? Do you have that view? All things are yours even death is yours why would you fear death that's that's a human wisdom thing isn't it you're arguing over all these little things everything belongs to you believer even death he says even death even death has no sway over you what's he say after that oh things present things present well which things well all things he said all things are yours so all things present now hang on a second what does that mean that means everything the good and the bad right the joys and the sorrows. All things present. Now, some of you may go, and say, oh, I, I want to pick, right? I, don't tell me all things are mine. I mean, I just want the good things. Isn't that the, the teaching we get? All the good things belong to us? No, all things are for you. All things present belong to you. That's part of that understanding of Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love him, right? To those who are called according to his purpose. We know that all things work together for good that's good and bad. It all works for you. They serve you, all things present. In fact, listen to what C.H. Linsky says, it is as if all things in life are a multitude of servants surrounding us on bended knees. They hold out their precious offerings to us. Some of these servants, like pain and injury and sickness and grief, may at first have a strange look to us who do not know our royalty sufficiently. It is God who commissions them all and makes each one bring us some blessing so that as kings unto God, we shall lack nothing. Credible. They're servants. They serve you in some way. Have you ever looked at the good and the bad as serving you? That's what Romans 28, 28 means, right? All things work together for good. In fact, you think about that verse and you compare it with Romans 8, 37 to 39. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. What things? I mean, if you were to look just a few verses prior to this, Paul tells us what kind of things, persecutions, nakedness, tribulation, sword, famine, right? (laughs) bunch of bad things. I would say, I would read that list and go, oh no. But he says, no, all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded, you can't convince them otherwise, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Even the bad things do not separate us from his love, right? Job, if Job was wrong, if Job was wrong in his thinking, that might have been where it was. Uh, maybe just God doesn't love me anymore, you know? Maybe he, he took delight in me and, and no longer uh, does. Maybe he started to adopt that sort of, you know, view of, of, of God. God's an unchanging God. He's a faithful God. Even those bad things that come our way ultimately work for our good. And notice that it says not just things present, but also things to come. Romans 8 says that, but but also Paul. Things present, things to come, all are yours. What things to come? What, what things? Well, I don't know. They haven't come yet, but they're yours. (laughs) You get them. I think it's primarily a reference to eternity, to, to heaven. All of those things, even the things we don't know about completely yet, it's all yours. What's Paul's point in all of this? Don't, don't make yourselves poor by dividing yourselves up into these little groups, choosing to just, you know, follow this thing or have this thing or fight for this little bit when it's all, all yours. That's what I titled this sermon. I could have said how to eliminate division, you know, as if like, which is kind of what Paul's doing. But really, I think the perspective is this. All things are yours. It's all yours. Like what we get so narrow minded, narrow viewed on, on all these little tiny earthly things, but it all belongs to you. Martin Luther said this, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Are you placing those things in his hands? Are you looking at it from that perspective? When we hold on to things, we're going to have a tendency to to lose them. Place them in God's hands. It's the right view of our possessions. And finally, the, the last point here Paul's going to make is the prop, having a proper understanding of our God. Remember, they, they limited God. They had a lower view of Him. Uh, you know, uh, we need to elevate these leaders because they're doing all the work. Paul says, no, it's God who gives the increase. We're just workers. <laughs> you know, we're just ministers. We're just busboys. We're servants. It's God who does the work. And he hits on that point again here in verse 23. Look at what he says. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. God possesses us. You, you have a right view of your, your possessions now? Well, have a right view of God. He is your possessor, okay? He possesses you. In fact, 1 Corinthians six seventeen tells us how that is. He who jo- is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. It's not if he says, uh, I, just, I just grab you and now you're mine and you do my bidding, We are joined to Him because we have His Spirit. He possesses us in that way. We all belong to Christ who belongs to God. You guys, there's no division. There's no division in the Trinity, right? They're, they're, They're all one, joined together, linked together. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, no division. And if we're one with Him, then we should not be bringing in division to that. Colossians, uh, Cambria read early this morning, I'll just point out verse three again, chapter three, verse three, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ. And where is Christ? In God. Now, that whole passage that she read was about just, you know, Stop focusing on the world things and focus on Him, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, right? If your life is hid with Him, think about Him and where you're going to be there. And if you do think about the things of the world, just think about it this way. It's all yours. Don't quibble and fight over all these things. It all belongs to you. I'm going to close with just taking you to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, if you'll turn there briefly, kind of just having this, again, idea of ownership, that you are owned. He possesses you. This is what it says in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice what he says, that he loved his own, his own those that belong to him. And when you continue right on through John's gospel, you continue to see that idea of ownership, that we're his sheep if we know him as our shepherd in John 10, that we're his servants if we follow him in John 12, that we're his disciples if we bear fruit in John chapter 15, his friends if we obey him, John chapter 15 as well, but also his brethren. Remember when he meets Mary after he's resurrected, he says, go to my brethren and tell them this, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. I go to my Father, but He's your Father because you have oneness in me. I go to my God, but He's your God because you have oneness in me. We are completely connected with Him. The ownership um, and, and relationship that we have there is the right, the proper understanding of God. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven, um, and in fact, it's a great book and, and one I would recommend reading at times like this, where can just get our eyes on the right place. But he writes this, our intimate link with Christ in His redemptive work makes us inseparable from Him, even now, as we walk with Him and commune with Him in this world, we experience a faint foretaste of heaven's delights and wonders you know as we walk in fellowship with him now we we experience we experience a little bit of the fellowship uh, later uh, we, we know that we're going to enjoy heaven, and we should be experiencing some of that in some way, even now. What an amazing promise that is so brothers and sisters as we as we look at this concluding thought from Paul, I just want to encourage you, listen, division has no place in the church, and paul is is encouraging them to. So listen, listen, let's have, let's have no division by having the right view of ourselves. We're not wise in our own eyes. Having the right view of of others. We don't elevate leaders. Having the right view of your possessions. Listen, we want, we want to kind of hoard our things, but listen, it all belongs to you. And having the right view of God, we belong to him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. And I just pray that you were glorified, that your people were edified. And I pray that we would really adopt that proper biblical understanding, Lord, and apply it to our lives. We want to live lives that are glorifying to you, and also, Lord, lives that are productive, and we just hinder ourselves. We hinder the work of the church when we bring in these sort of human philosophies and human wisdom, elevate leaders, and all these things, Lord, that bring division. Oh, Lord, may our church never have that. I pray that you protect our church. Help us to be one of mind, one of body and spirit. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.